Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning and for this opportunity, God, to gather in this place and to look at your word and to worship you. God, today, as we look at the story, God, I pray that you would help us to see our deep need for you and that you are the God who satisfies our thirst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're going to John chapter 4 this morning. John chapter 4. And as you turn there, today's going to be a little different. We're going to actually be walking through a narrative of Scripture. So if you'll notice in your notes, it's kind of blank, which gives you space to create and to express what God's doing in your heart and life through the sermon in that space. As you're turning there, we all have a deep thirst in the center of our lives. At the core of who we are, we long to be known and we long to be loved. We struggle with the idea of being known because we believe that deep down inside, if people really knew who we were, that we would be rejected. Therefore, we have different faces and different approaches when we're in different situations. We're one person at work, we're another person at church, we're another person with our family, and we're another person when we're deep down inside with ourselves. We're afraid to be who we truly are because we may not fit into others' expectations of us. We fear rejection. Rejection is the fear that stands at the center of who we are because those who are rejected don't experience love. They're thrown to the side. They're pushed out of the way. They are rejected. Our search for being loved plays out in relationships with other people. If you've seen a romantic comedy, romantic comedies talk about the search for the one person who will complete us. If we can get this person in our life as our spouse or our significant other, the world will be awesome and everything will be great. What we do is we take things that will fulfill us and that will fulfill our ultimate thirst that can only be found in Jesus and we put that on other people. It doesn't matter how good that person is, that person cannot hold the weight of us. Our desire for love also leads to our performance. If I'm successful, people will love me. If I make good grades, people will respect me. If I've built an impressive life, people will notice me and I will truly be loved. The thirst to be known and the thirst to be loved also comes into our faith and our interaction with Jesus. Because deep down inside, we believe lies about God. One of those lies we believe is this, that Jesus only truly loves us on our best days. That Jesus' love is contingent on our good works for him. When we serve at VBS, when we're on a choir tour, when we're on a mission trip, those are the moments when God loves us and he doesn't love us at other times, so we think. Or we believe the lie that Jesus only truly loves some future version of us. When we're perfect, when we've been made holy, when we're in heaven, that's the us that Jesus will love. We all long to be known and we long to be loved. The scary thing about God is God is the only person that truly knows us. Whether we want to admit that or not, God knows every thought, He knows our every deed, and He knows us better than we could ever know ourselves. This morning we're going to look at a familiar story from John's Gospel And in this gospel, we're going to understand this, that in the gospel, we can be both fully known and fully loved because Jesus is the one who quenches our thirst. In the gospel, we can both be fully known and fully loved because Jesus is the one who truly quenches our thirst. John chapter 4, starting in verse 3. 
the text reads this way. He, speaking of Jesus, left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Jesus' ministry is building. He's becoming more popular. He has disciples that are following him, and his ministry is growing. He is moving from Judea to Galilee. Verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. When we think about this line, he had to pass through Samaria, this is a line that most Jewish readers would look at and go, what? He had to pass through Samaria? Samaria is the wrong side of the track. Samaria is that part of town we don't go into. You see, the Jews looked down on the Samaritans because the Samaritans were a mixed culture. The Samaritans were a product of Jewish people intermarrying with a different type of people. They had different gods. They worshipped God in different ways. They had different views on things. They were seen as the enemy. If you were a Jew in that time, the people you picked to look down upon so you would feel better about yourself would be the Samaritans. So for most people making this journey, it would be natural to detour around Samaria. I'm not going there. That's the wrong side of the tracks. That's the spot I'm not supposed to be in. But as we're going to see as this story unfolds, Jesus is a God who doesn't care about social expectations at all. Jesus is a God who's willing to enter into situations and moments that everyone around him will look at and go, that's crazy, why would you ever do that? Because Jesus is a God who pursues. Jesus is a God who loves. And Jesus is a God who is going to Samaria because there's a woman he's going to meet there. And that woman is wrestling with the two questions that stand at the core of who we are. Am I loved and can I be known? He had to pass through Samaria, verse 4, verse 5. So he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, uh, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Jesus is on a journey. He comes. He finds this well. He sits down because there is a moment that is going to happen. It is the middle of the day. When you think about wells in ancient times, one thing that people would do is they would come get their water in a time of the day when it was good to go do that, like it's not when it's not hot. So she would come, So this is the middle of the day. You don't expect to see anybody at the well because it's hot. It's the moment that people normally do not come. Jesus sits down there to rest, verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food this woman appears the fact that the woman is here in this moment of the day tells us a lot about the woman tells us that this woman is not part of the normal social gathering of the people that would go to the well this is a woman whose journey to the well probably consisted of having her head down and walking to that place where she would not be noticed where no one would take the time to stop and to look at her and to notice her because she was seen as damaged goods. She was seen as someone who was pushed to the side. She was seen as someone that no one wanted to be friends with or interact with or even have a conversation with. In her moment of having her head down and sneaking to the well to get water, this man asked her this question. And what's shocking about this question is the fact that Jewish men would not have spoken to Samaritan women. This is something that they wouldn't expect to happen. And he asks her to give him a drink. As the two of them sit there, the story continues. Verse 9. 
The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The lady calls him out. How are you going to have this conversation with me that's not supposed to work this way? Verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, I have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and did his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. I will not be thirsty again or have to come here to draw water. Jesus begins this conversation with the lady. He focuses the picture of water from the water that she's physically coming to get to that longing at the core of who she is. That she's thirsting for something. That she's longing for something. That she's longing for something more. She's longing to be known and she's longing to be loved. Because her experience in life have been those who know her don't love her and don't want to have anything to do with her. She's longing. She's hoping. And there's one who offers her water. Living water. Something that could fill her thirst. Something that could give her life. Something that could change the direction of her story. So that when she looked at herself in the mirror, she didn't see damaged goods. She saw someone that God had placed his great love and affection on. I want the water. Verse 15. So that I will not be thirsty Or have to come here to draw water. She asked the question. Give me this. Then Jesus responds. Verse 16. Jesus says to her. Go call your husband to come over here. And the woman answered him. I have no husband. And Jesus said to her. "Uh, You're right in saying you have no husband. For you've had five husbands. And the one that you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. She says, I want living water, and Jesus turns to her heart. Because her thirst for eternal water doesn't come through her mouth, it comes through her heart. It comes through the core of who she is. And Jesus asks the question that brings up the story. The reason she has her eyes focused on the ground. The reason she comes here every day on her own. The reason she hides from the world, and that reason is this. She's longing to be known and longing to be loved. You see, she's had five different husbands. It's one thing that happens in a marriage ceremony. Someone stands up in front of God and everyone else and you and says, I will love you. I will pursue you. I will be there for you. She made that promise five times and five times people had walked out the door on her. What's so hard about her with being divorced five times is this. Five times she's given her heart away and she's been rejected. She's been told, I know you and I don't love you. 
So five times she's been told that she's worthless. She's been told that she's incapable of love. The third husband told her that she is not wanted. The fourth husband told her that she's not good enough. And the fifth husband told her that she didn't matter and no one cared. This has been the verdict that has been spoken over her life. I know you and I don't want to. I know you and I'm going to push you away. I know you and you're damaged goods and you're worthless and who would want you? So when she's with her sixth guy, she doesn't even waste the time with the ceremony and the pointless words because she knows there's no heart behind that. The heart of her thirst. She wants to be known. And she wants to be loved. And every man in every relationship she's looked for has told her no. You are not, I know you, I can't love you. The story continues, verse 19. The woman says to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Who would know this? No one told you my story. How did you get in the depths of my soul and the depths of my struggle? There must be something different about you. In that moment, the woman diverts the conversation like we so often do when it comes to matters of the heart. Rather build up walls than deal with our hearts. It says this, Sir, you perceive you're a prophet. Verse 19, verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. She immediately changes the narrative. She shifts from her heart and the core of her and her longings and what she's dealing with into a theological debate. You know, the Samaritans say that we should worship on Mount Gerizim. The Jews say we should worship in Jerusalem. Where's it at? Where are we supposed to worship? How do we do this correctly? She does what we so often do. We get in our religious boxes and we build our religious walls and we guard our hearts from the work of God in our life. God doesn't stand in heaven and look down on earth and go, man, I wish they could get all this stuff figured out about how I work and what I do. No, God stands in heaven and goes, I came and I sent my son to pursue their heart. At the core of who they are, there's a God who loves them and pursues them and who wants them. And that damaged goods is not anything that should be written over the lives of anyone because we have a God who pursues. She built the religious walls. She got lost in her theology and used her theology to guard her heart. Jesus responds this way. Verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming where neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming where worship is not going to matter in a certain place. Verse 22. You worship what you do not know, but we worship what we do know because salvation comes through the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus' response is this. You think it's about a location? There's a time coming when we'll worship God not at Mount Gerizim or not in Jerusalem that we'll worship God with all of who we are. And I love this picture here of spirit and in truth, that our interaction and our worship with God is not a theological head transaction. Faith is something that involves the head and the heart. 
And it's by worshiping God and pursuing God with all of who we are that we get to know him, that he begins to change our lives, that he begins to speak truth to us, and that we begin to be people who have our thirst fulfilled. Because our thirst is not to have a perfect theology. Our thirst is to have a Jesus who loves us and pursues our heart. That's our thirst. She goes on to say this, verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And when he comes, I will tell you these things. There's this Messiah. There's this promised rescuer. There's this one who's going to reveal truth. There's one that's coming as truth in flesh. I know that this Messiah is coming, and at that time he's going to clear this up. Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus can fully know her and fully love her because he's the Messiah who died to pursue her. Just verse 27. Just then the disciples come back and they marveled that he was talking to the woman but never said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? What we talked about earlier, don't have to voice the words because God knows your heart. Jesus knew what they were thinking before they even said it. They didn't have to say the words. They showed up in the in the message on their heart, and I'm sure the reaction on their face was, Jesus, what in the world are you doing? We're on the bad side of the tracks. We're talking to the person we're not supposed to, from the culture we're not supposed to. We're in this moment that we're not supposed to be in. We have violated every potential rule. Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went to the town to see the people. She's so excited. She's experienced this moment that she leaves her water jar. The thing that she brought to get water to fulfill her thirst, she leaves behind because she's been captivated by Jesus. And she says this, come see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Can this man be the Christ? It's interesting that she uses the word that he told me everything I ever did. Because the reason she looks down, the reason she comes to the well in the middle of the day, the reason she's hiding from the world is they know everything she ever did. And she lives in fear of that. But for the first time in her life, she's met someone who knows her and yet loves her and pursues her. She goes, can this be the Christ? Skip ahead to verse 39. She goes and she tells them. Jesus has another interaction with his disciples. And we pick up the woman's story in 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said of the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. We have heard for ourselves And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Her testimony, her story, her interaction with Jesus not only changed her, but changed those around her. So how can a perfect Jesus allow us to both be fully known and fully loved? There's a pastor in um, Texas named Matt Chandler. And Matt tells a story that I'm going to share with you this morning. Matt tells the story of going to a youth conference and sitting down and hearing a speaker. And as the speaker began the youth conference, he took a rose out. 
And he shared with them about the rose. This rose is beautiful. It has great beauty. It has great value. God made it the way he did, and it's awesome. You should take the rose and smell the rose and feel the rose and send the rose through the crowd. So he passed it to the first person, and the rose begins to make its way through those that are gathered. The speaker goes on to share his talk. His talk is a very gospelless version of Christianity where it's all about what you do. You got to be a good person. You got to get your life together. You got to pursue your best life now. His message is all about you and you and you and you. And guess what? If you don't do that, if your record's not perfect, you're a failure. You're terrible. God couldn't really love you. And as the flower moves its way around, uh, like flowers do with teenagers, um, and most things do with teenagers, they gradually get destroyed. So as they filled the different things, the flower would begin to uh, fall apart. And so he got to the point in his talk where he decided to go back and to mention um, the flower again. And he said, hey, you know, where's... Where's that flower at? And so he goes down the aisle and he gets the flower. And the flower looks a little bit like this. I don't know if y'all can see the flower or not. Um, In the early service, I tried to give this flower to Liz. And my sweet wife rejected it. And so when we think about flowers like this, this is a flower that no one would want. And so he grabbed the flower and he goes, look at this flower. Look at how broken it is. Look at how messed up it is. Look at how ruined it is. Who would want this? No one would want the flower. Like you've taken your whole life and guess what? You've messed it up. You've been a failure. Things have fallen apart and things have not gone the way you wanted to. And that we look like this broken, messed up flower that no one wants except to throw into the garbage can. Who would want that? The pastor said. As Matt sat in his seat, Matt said, I could almost not keep myself quiet. Because guess who wants the flower? Jesus wants the rose. No one else may want the rose. Jesus wants the rose. Jesus died to pursue us. Jesus died to take the broken pieces of our broken lives and to make a majestic picture of his goodness and grace. Jesus wants us. No matter how messed up we are, no matter how broken we are, no matter how many histories we have in our lives, no matter how many times we've been told, no, you're not enough, I'm pushing you to the side, I'm moving you out of the way, Jesus wants the rose. Stands as the center of the gospel message. That's the reason Jesus had to go through Samaria. Because this woman needed to know the hope of Christ. This is why Jesus came down from heaven to earth into our broken and messed up world because people needed to be rescued. This is why the Father, when the Son got to the point where he realized that spending Daddy's money and eating slop out of the pigsty, were not enough for him, he welcomed him back. It's the message of the gospel that Jesus wants us and that Jesus pursues us and that Jesus took our brokenness and gave us his perfection at the cross. He rescued us so our past no longer define us so we can be both fully known and fully loved. So often we drift from who we are in Jesus and try to satisfy our thirst in other places. 
We look to status to attempt to satisfy our thirst. We look for a relationship to complete us and to satisfy who we are. We look for power to satisfy us. We look for success to satisfy our thirst. We make bad trades. I have a younger brother named Daniel. Daniel's uh, four years younger than me. When you're the older brother, sometimes in life you learn stuff that the younger brother doesn't know yet that gives you an opportunity to get an advantage. When we were learning about money, in Daniel's mind, the larger money equaled the bounty of more value. So I took all my nickels and traded it for his dimes. It was a great business deal for me. I doubled the amount of money we had. And um, Daniel thought he was making more money because he got a bigger item. So often when it comes to our faith, we trade dimes for nickels. We see stuff that's larger and more shiny and more exciting. And we say, guess what? I'm going to walk away from Jesus, my source of life, my source of hope, my source of fulfillment. And I'm going to chase after this bigger, shinier thing. We make bad trades. We take our dimes and we trade them for nickels. In the book of Jeremiah, the prophet wrote to the people in Jeremiah 2.13 and talked about bad trades by saying this. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and made for themselves cisterns that cannot hold water. The people walked away from a fountain of water, a fountain of life, and instead took cups with holes in them and thought that they would fulfill them. We make bad trades. We forget each and every day that our source of life, our source of hope, and our source of strength comes from the fountain of life and not from us. Not from success, not from other relationships. This morning, when you think about your life, are you thirsty? Are you seeking hope, life, and meaning in places where those things cannot be found? Are you trading the fountain found in Jesus in your relationship with him for shiny things that don't end up satisfying you in the end? Are you trading your dimes for nickels and missing the fact that you're making bad trades and a bad business deal? This morning the offer is this. The woman came, the woman met Jesus, and the woman left her jar behind. She didn't need to carry around an empty jar anymore. She didn't need to look for anything to fulfill her anymore because she had met Jesus and Jesus fulfilled her. We need to experience the place our heart is made for in the gospel, that we can rest in Jesus, a place where we're fully known, and fully loved because of his grace. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your great grace. God, that you know us, that you love us, that you pursue us, and that you want our relationship with us. God, it's the relationship that we were made for. It's the thing that deep in our hearts we are longing for. God, today, for those of us in this room who've maybe never come to a point where we've Put our faith in you. God, I pray that you would stir their hearts and that you would cause them to realize that there's a fountain. There's a fountain of life. And their thirst can be satisfied. And God, for those of us who may have walked with you for a while, and God may have traded the fountain for the cup with the holes in it, God, bring us back to the fountain of life. God, help us to know that you're a God who always pursues and remind us each and every day that our hope and our life and our joy and our peace 
in the world that we were made for is found no further than you. That be with us as we respond in worship. And it's in the strong name of Jesus, the God who perceives, that we pray.